he says that as he can't find it in his own Bible, where I had it marked with a marker. Hebrews chapter 13, go ahead and stand with me for this, if you would. One more time, we'll be like in Catholic Church, stand, sit, kneel, you know, get a little exercise in. Starting with verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led, led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from, who, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. We'll repeat that. We have, an altar, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You may be seated. What happens to me a lot of times when I go to do things is I realize I want to say a certain thing. The Lord puts something in my heart to say. But before I can say the thing I want to say, there are other things that have to be said. Does that make sense? Right? Um, a really good friend of mine who's a pastor back in Kentucky does what I do a lot, and that is he overqualifies everything he says, right? Because the longer you live, the more you realize there's not a whole lot that you know for sure outside of the Bible. Amen? that you, you, you're pretty sure about things. I mean, when I was 19, I had all the answers to the universe. By the time I was 30, I'd forgotten a bunch of them, I guess. I don't know what happened, but I had to go back and reevaluate because I found that a lot of times some of the things that I thought always happened weren't quite true. In fact, um, I, was, I was sitting there typing this week, and I, and I realized nowadays, whenever you're typing, now how many of you, how many of you know how to type? Like you can type, type, two hands. Okay, now how many of you learned on a typewriter? Okay, look at that, all you kids, you know, learn to type with your thumbs. We didn't have thumbs, we had fingers. Now, here's a did anybody learn on a manual typewriter? Now, that would be real, whoa, whoa, you guys, you did not, no. You're like 20 years old, how, that, that yeah. I'll, I'll accept it by faith, because I have no reason to question your character, but man, that doesn't... I learned on an electric at least. Um, in fact, somebody was, and I said, we used to, when we were typing, they'd put the little sheet of paper over your hand so you couldn't see your fingers when you looked down. And um, I remember that they always taught us to put two, two spaces after the period, right? You're typing, you hit two periods after space. You know now in the modern internet age, you don't have to do that anymore, and they've actually changed the rule to be one period after the sentence. Do you know how much that offends me? I, I was just, I'm like, because I'm going back and trying to do it because that's the rule now. See, what happened was, here's what you kids didn't know. Back in the day, they had to have a little metal piece that struck a ribbon, and the ribbon struck the paper, and that's how ink was produced on page. There was no magic computer sending things, and so each little block of metal was the same size, right? So they had to have so many spaces in between those blocks of metals. Well, now computers can make things all kinds of sizes and space things out so you don't have to do that. But I was really kind of bummed about that, you know, because I grew up knowing that rule and knowing that that's how it was, and all of a sudden it was changed on me. We're going to kind of talk today about, I, I want to get to the part where we talk about your tabernacle and your temple, but I can't get you to the tabernacle and temple until we get you to the altar, right? Now, 
I've heard two things from the Lord in the last four months, two things I know for sure about our church, two things that if, if somebody put a you know, gun to my head and said, tell me what God's doing in your church, I know two things. One, he told me to equip the saints for the journey that we're about to go on, and two is fix your tabernacle, <laughs> right? And, and uh, if any of you haven't noticed our decorative line up the back, we're getting that painted. We have our, our esteemed painter is going to come and rescue me from seeing that every Sunday when I come, every weekday when I come in and, and look at it. He's, he's finally going to rescue me from the obsessing about that. Um, and there's certain things we're going to do to fix the tabernacle. And the reason I call this a tabernacle is because this church has been here how many years? Like a thousand. Like, like literally first building in Belvedere, right? But it kind of dropped in my spirit that sometimes we set up temples in places that are supposed to be tabernacles. Right? that it's supposed to be kind of our tent and kind of our journey and we're kind of moving through it. And sometimes we just kind of do like the disciples want to do when Jesus was up on the mountain with Elijah and, um, help me, Elijah and Enoch, Moses, thank you, man. Um, <laughs> thank God I have my Bible teacher right there in the front row, all you guys. Um, that they wanted to set up a temple for where Jesus was at because they wanted to enshrine that experience of seeing him transfigured. Now they saw Jesus in the glory that they had expected him to see him, and yet he said, no, don't do that, right? He told them not to. Sometimes we try to make a temple out of a tabernacle. And I want to talk about that, but we're not going to get there yet because first we've got to talk about building altars because you can't get in a tabernacle until you built your altar. Now what in the world are you talking about, David Paul, building an altar? Well, I'm glad you asked, hypothetically. We've been talking a lot about, anybody ever heard the phrase next level, you know, get to your next level? Like I told Lynn the other day, new, de new level, new devil, right? These are little sayings that we've heard. And we always talk about the next level. And, and I hear that a lot. And, and I'm a very practical person. I really am. I don't, I love pithy sayings and quotes, but if they don't have something real behind them, like if you say get to the next level in the Lord to me, I'm like, well, what level am I now? And what's the next level? What are the requirements for the next level? So I can go check those boxes, right? And of course, it's different for everybody, isn't it? Where you're at spiritually to be in the next place you need to be spiritually is different for everybody. But one of the things that we're going to talk about is that some people are in altar places, some people are in, ta are in tabernacle places, and some people are in temple places. Altar places are the kind of places where you've got to establish the boundaries, you've got to establish what God has done in your life, and you've got to take that and build a memorial to it and know that inside of you that that thing is settled and it's no longer, man, how many people had to get saved like 63 times, right? You didn't have to, but you kept doubting whether or not you were, right? Like you were saved and you're like, oh, maybe I'm not saved, Right? Do you know at some point you just got to build an altar where that salvation is at and know that whenever the enemy comes with those thoughts, you point right back to that thing in your heart that says, at this moment I gave my heart to the Lord. We built an altar. We poured oil over that thing. That thing is consecrated. It's done. We're good, right? So that every time, because otherwise what happens, he's going to keep coming back and questioning you about that, right? You're going to keep coming back. Well, maybe I'm not saved. If I was really saved, I'd be better off than I am. I'd be doing better. So I'd be, you know, saving the world by now if I was really saved, Right? So we're going to talk about building altars. There are five characteristics of an altar. First one is, I'm, let, I'm letting them do it. I'm taking off control. You have to build it. God doesn't build your altar for you. Isn't that mean? He makes you do work. Did you know that? Do you know God did not save you to a lazy boy, 
right? He did, not, he did not call you to a comfy bed. I was listening, there was a guy on the radio today talking about his bed is filled with pillows, so everywhere he turns is a pillow, so his whole body feels comforted everywhere he turns when he's laying there in bed. And some people really expect church to be like that, don't they? Just a big bed of pillows. Our pastor's so happy that we're all doing just so great and everything's so nice and comforting everything we're doing. And sure, my life is an absolute train wreck, but I need you to tell me it's okay, pastor. I can't tell you that. I mean, I could tell you that, but I'd feel bad when you continue down the path at the train. And I find out that a lot of times, my own life included, the parts of my life that are a train wreck are a train wreck because I've never moved the track, right? The problem is, is I take the same train track into the same decisions and end up in the same place and then wonder my, why my life ends up being a train wreck in that area, right? Well, it's because we keep making the same decisions that get back there. I saw a sign that said everything happens for a reason, but sometimes that reason is you're dumb and you make bad decisions right? Um, I thought that was funnier than you gave me credit for. That's okay. Some parts of our lives should be sacred and immovable. When I'm talking about building an altar in your life, something that our society does not understand is the sacredness of who you are. Because we live in a very vulgar society. Um, Nothing's sacred in society, right? I always kind of blame the comedians because once comedians start joking about it and break down that barrier, then all of a sudden it opens all other kinds of doors to, to open and talk about things. Not that comedy is wrong or that some of the, but you know, you, you know the ones, right, that are always trying to take what's sacred and just kind of poke at it and make fun of it and try, and that there's nothing, there's no part of our society or nothing anymore that we actually hold and say, no, this is, this is, this is pure, this is good, this isn't, that's why we have so much moral relativism, if I can use that we have so much people don't believe in wrong or right anymore because they see so much wrong in the right, right? That we've all seen the pastors fall. We've all seen congregations split. We've all seen people hurt by the church. We've seen enough of that. That sometimes in churches it's hard to have an altar and that altar to be pure. Even in our church history, and I was talking about somebody today, to somebody today, that even in this church's history, a few years back, we had that same kind of scandal happen here in it, and it rocked our church here. Even we weren't immune to that. And then as a pastor, you're always a little nervous because, you know, well, what, you know what, if, what if you do everything right? And I knew a pastor did everything right and then come to find out, you know, his youth pastor was doing something just completely illegal and almost had the entire church shut down over it, right? Because the enemy's coming after the move of God because he wants to take whatever's sacred in you, convince you that it's not, and convince you to give that away to whoever asks. Did you know that? Did you know there's something in you worth being sacred? There's something in you that's worth being holy? But... Until you build an altar around it. It has to be intentional, right? It doesn't just happen magically. We're going to do communion today, and I'm going to come back to this a couple of times because this ties in. I have a hard time taking communion ever without at least one tear coming out because communion to me is such a sacred, such a beautiful thing. And I've never, I've never expressed to anybody all the reasons why it is, but there always has to be something there. I mean, when I was a kid, I couldn't drink grape juice outside of church, right? Because I grew up in church, and grape juice was communion, right? And I remember the first time, I didn't know where I was at, somebody just had it, and it was kind of, it was like grape juice, and I was like, whoa, that's holy, I can't. I mean, it was just in a cup, and I'm just at someone's house, right? But all of a sudden, I had that sense of, wait, this is something, there wasn't anything special about grape juice, it's Welch's, Right? They make millions of gallons of this stuff every day, and yet to me, I knew that that particular thing was sacred, and that particular thing was holy. You know, a lot of times our marriages and relationships aren't sacred and holy because we use words that defile them, don't we? You know, and, and I hate to say it, but, but sometimes 
The things that shouldn't be said, we say, and then once they're out there, once they're in the air, once they've been spoken, there's no way to take them back, and it's already violated that thing. If you tell your wife or husband something about them that you don't like, they will never forget that you told them something about them that they don't like, especially if they're your husband or wife, because that's forever, right? This is the person I'm married to, and they don't like this about me, and they remember that stuff, don't they? And yet we let that stuff fly out like it's nothing, like there's nothing sacred about our husband and wife that we should be building them up and not tearing them down because you know that relationship is an altar that you have set up. You stood before a priest or pastors one day and you made a vow before God and you said, this is the altar, this is the hill I die on. I'm planting my flag here. This is the person. No one ever gets married and says, this is my first, right? At the altar. Oh, this is one. We'll knock this one out, you know. Um, I do, I have made that joke. Kristen does not like it that I'm 21 years into my starter wife. Um, but I never believed that, right? And, and the reason I say that is because it's very humorous to me because there's no way I could ever be married to anybody else because one, she'd haunt me, right? She'd have to be dead first and then she would haunt me um, well after. Um, if, if the Lord lets her at all, she'd be back, you know, making the shower water cold or whatever she could do to get to me. Um, but two, Kristen's the one I'm meant to be with. And there are times when the enemy will come against me and challenge that, right? Come on, husbands and wives. You know every now and then you woke up beside them and they had bad breath or they had the flu and they stunk and they looked terrible and you had to think to yourself, is this the one God set me with, right? But there's this altar, there's this place, there's this sacredness that says no. I chose her and she chose me and we stood before God and said, this is what we're going to do. And we're, we're together, come rain or shine, good times or bad. Or I'm just building up points so I can use a, another illustration later, right? Um, you have to build it though. You're the one that has to decide that there's something sacred enough in your life. And if you don't have that place with God, why is that? If you don't have something, let's get to the next one. Go to the next one. It may just look like a pile of rocks. We're going to go over three different people who built altars. But the thing about a lot of the altars in the Old Testament is they had specific rules about how altars can be constructed. And I won't go into all of them, but I will say this one, that they were always supposed to be uncut stone, right? They weren't, they weren't shaped in anything. Part of that was because you didn't want to make an idol, right, and make that idol into an altar. So when they're piling these stones, they have to find regular old natural stones that just look like a pile of rocks. And sometimes you go through something, and when you get on the other side of that, God has taught you something so awesome and so beautiful, and you know that thing now. You know it for sure. But to somebody else, it just looks like a big pile of rocks because they don't know what you went through to get that there, right? They don't know all the breaking and all the geological things that had to, the upheavals in your life, all the cracks that had to surface before you had the things to take. And a lot of times what God is doing in that is he's taking all the randomness of what you have been through and he's building something out of that. He says, take all these things and now shape them into something and know that this is what you have learned and this is where I've put you, that this is your altar, that this is the place you stand. I'll get to, uh, there was so much, this is one of those messages too where there's so much information, I had to cut a whole lot of stuff out. If we're going to get out of here by, you know, next week. I, I did find this funny, I went, I, whenever I study for something, I, I go deep, I, I study secular sources, I study archaeological sources, I study biblical sources, of course, and all this, and one of the things is when I got onto a Wikipedia page about altars, and they were trying to describe what an altar call was on a Wikipedia page, and I found it so funny. 
right? Because they're like, they, it was something along the lines of, and, and some churches, even though they don't have altars, have altar calls, and an altar call is when people are asked to come forward and recite a prayer called the sinner's prayer, and they believe this sinner's prayer will save them. Or some, you know, I'm just, just the worst terms to describe what an altar call is, right? Because looking at that from the outside makes no sense. We don't even have an altar, do we? Now, I, I do have dreams to get an altar in here one day, and I have a couple of different dreams on how that will go, and I'll let the Lord pick the one he likes or give me a new one, right? But we don't have an altar here, but we still call it an altar call. And not only that, there is something so, so awesome, so ridiculously powerful, so undescribable that there comes a certain time in a service when the music is playing and the Holy Spirit is present and people's hearts are bowed, that if you have the courage to walk up to the front and step in this little line, right? It's the, it's the same red carpet as the rest of the building, isn't it? And yet, right there, in this undefined, because where does it start and where does it end? In this place, God does things, doesn't he? I mean... I remember the first time when I was saved, the, the whole thing about me being saved is I didn't have an actual sinner's prayer. I didn't mean to go to the altar. In fact, I don't think they had an altar there either. The only reason I went forward was to impress my dad. I was trying to get out of trouble. But the thing was, is once I stepped in that area and I was side by side with saints, right? And I had a saint on either side of me just, just praying and just being in the presence of the Lord that all of a sudden I was overcome with the feeling that if I had the ability to open my eyes that God was nose to nose with me and that scared me to death to be that close to the presence of God. But you know what? I will always remember the feeling of that night because that night I built an altar. That night I said, this is where I met God at. This was the place that I came to know him at. And there was no doubt after that day that I was saved. Because if anybody would have said, are you sure? I'd be like, oh my gosh, you would not believe what happened on this day that I was in the presence of God and God did something. And so in my heart, I'm building these stones and I'm setting up this monument, right? I'm setting up these uncut stones of all the stuff. And the stuff that I was collecting was, oh my gosh, I had unforgiveness towards my mom. Oh my gosh, I had rejection from people. I had all these different things that had just been in my heart. I had the hypocrisy that I saw in the church being raised as a preacher's kid, and yet each one of those things I built into this monument until finally I said, Lord, if you'll take me now after everything that I've done, I will not be like the others. I will serve you with all my heart, and it won't be half-hearted, God, but you will have all of me. Because all those things that had happened, all of a sudden they become the stones on which the altar is built that I say to God, you're in control. Next one. You have to consecrate it. I'm gonna, I'm, we might be here till Tuesday. Sorry, guys. The Hebrew word mizbiah means to slaughter. The Greek translation of that is a place of sacrifice. In fact, if you've heard the word holocaust, we refer to the holocaust as the holocaust, but holocaust is a Greek word that actually means holy burnt. That if you're going to have an altar, you've got to put something on it. We have been taught in church about an effortless anointing, right? We've been taught in church that if you just ask in the right way or say the right things, God is going to do, right? That it requires no holiness on our part, no sanctification in what we do. It requires no change in our actions because God is God. And that part is true. But God, all through his word, judges the hearts of men, doesn't he? Your holiness doesn't get you saved, right? Your holiness doesn't get you more saved. 
But if you think you're going to have an anointing on your life and not have a measure of holiness, you're mistaken. A lot of the reasons why these altars lay in ruins in our hearts and they don't mean anything to us is because it didn't cost us anything. When David was going to get, David had uh, committed to sin. He'd counted the people, and God had told him never to do that, but he counted the people. And so a plague is sweeping over Israel, and the angel stops at the threshing floor. The angel of death stops at a certain threshing floor, and the prophet comes to David and says, go build an altar on that threshing floor, and the plague will be abated. So David goes to there, and he's going to set up the altar. When the man comes and sees the king, he lays down before him and says, hey, no, take the threshing floor, anything you need. He goes, I'm not going to give something to God that didn't cost me anything. And so he pays the man before he takes the threshing floor and he builds the altar and the plague is satiated. Satiated? Say the word for me, my mouth is dry. Every altar requires a sacrifice. You aren't going to get to your future without leaving who you were in the past behind you. Right? Because the other, the other option is with all these stones, all these rocks that you'd be collecting to build that altar, all the rejection you've been through, all the pain you've been through, all the suffering, all the things you know where things didn't turn out like you wanted, your dreams didn't quite come true, you had to take some turns and some wrong turns. You can do one of two things. If you don't build an altar out of them, you know what you do, right? You keep carrying them around. They keep weighing you down. They become that thing that keeps you from getting to the next place. The way you get rid of those is to put them into an altar and consecrate that thing with the sacrifice of God. I'm going to change my life and be who you want me to be because you want me to be that and because I trust in you to accomplish this. And then all of a sudden you're free of that burden. All of a sudden all that's taken off of you. And yet we're so convinced that if we just hold on to these things a little bit longer, that they're ours. We possess them, right? We, people, people hold on. I'm going to talk about unforgiveness at the seniors thing. But, you know, people hold on to stuff like it's their sacred possession. This person treated me wrong. Oh, they treated me wrong. I'm going to hold that forever. Me and the way this person treated me is just going on. That one time, Jake, he did this thing to me. Oh, my gosh. And I'm just going to hold that. And every now and then, you know what? When I see somebody, I'll be like, did you see this thing Jake did to me? Did you see that? Do you know what he did? Oh, my gosh. Look at that. Look how horrible it is. What do you think of Jake when Jake does something like this to me? And then we take that and we hold it, right? And people do that. And they hold them against all sorts of people as if somehow that's going to, <laughs> that's going to make it okay that they got hurt. Because here's the thing. It is wrong of them to hurt you. But why do you keep hurting yourself by taking it with you? Right? It was wrong that things happened to you, but why do you let it keep being wrong by holding that against that person and carrying those stones around as if they're some sort of trophies? Oh, look what I have. Take them and build an altar. Build an altar and say, God, look at this altar. It's made out of all the rejection and the hurtful words and all the gossip and the things I had to go through. But I'm going to build this altar, Lord, and I'm going to lay all those offenses on top of this altar, and that's going to be a sacrifice to you, and you can have them, God. I'm just going to let this thing burn. I'm just going to set it on fire and walk away, and it's going to come up to you as a pleasing aroma. And if you want to give them back to me, you know, let me know. But otherwise, God, it is in your hands. And then when that thing comes back up, you say, no, 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 no. That, that's on an altar back there. You know, after I got saved, I had, I, had, I had some things against a lot of people. But when I got saved, it all fell off, right? Because I looked at everything that happened as before I was saved, right? Well, yeah, that, that was terrible. But I wasn't saved yet, so who knows what kind of person I was, right? And it was easy, and I, I get it. You know, some things come easier to some people than others. But you've got to build an altar about it. You've got to consecrate it. You've got to set that thing on fire and walk away. And next... You have to be able to get back to it. 
Which doesn't make sense at first, does it, right? Because why would you want to get back to something that you left behind? But the reason why you have to get back to it is because there's always going to be that time in your life when you've got to run to the altar and get a hold of it. Right? Because once you set that altar, see, once you set that pillar, once you set that, that place, right? You're, <laughs> I, love, I love threshing floors in the Old Testament because my, my favorite threshing floor story is when the Philistines are sweeping in on the Israelites and all the Israelites are put to flight and they're all taken off except for one guy who when he hits the threshing floor, puts his foot down, stops, takes out his sword and slays 300 Philistines and doesn't give up the threshing floor, right? I, I, love, that, I love that idea of having that one place in your life where you've been running you've been running and see here's the thing is that can I tell you there was a time in my life where I kept disobeying God and kept disobeying God and kept disobeying God and kept finding myself in the same bad positions because I wasn't doing like every time it would come to a decision I would do what I wanted not what I knew was right and yet they kept going wrong and yet the next time I was in that decision I'd make the same decision again there had to be a place where I built an altar out of that and said you know what just for kicks I'm going to see what happens when I obey God Right? Just, you know, you never know, right? So this time, I'm going to go ahead and do what the Lord says. And I just did it just to see what was on the other side, just because I was curious if I could make this decision the other way. But do you know people live their lives thinking they don't have the ability to make the decision to choose the other way? Last week when we had the altar call, and I knew that there were people that no matter what you say, no matter how much you beg or plead, you could have an altar call for the rest of the day, they're not going to come forward because there's something in their heart that says they can't come forward to an altar alterphobia. I don't know what it is, but some people are scared to death of what would happen if they were ever to come up here and just be in the presence of the Lord. Some people don't think their problem is serious enough. They don't think what's going on in their right life is, is bad enough to warrant the attention of God. You know, God doesn't just want the big things in your life, right? God wants the little everyday things too. If the only time you are in the presence of God is here in the church, then I have news for you. You're doing Christianity wrong. Okay, if this is the first time this week, you know, the the music was going, the spirit was moving and you felt like you were in the presence of God. And if that's the first time in this week, I'm not saying you're bad. I'm just saying you got something a little askew and you're doing it a little bit wrong. That we have to live the kind of life where we're in the presence of God and coming to church is just a chance to be around other people who know what we've experienced and can move like we move. So let me take you through. Is that the fifth one? No, one more which is you can't get in your tabernacle or your temple without building your altar, which we already kind of said. Ultimately, the altar is the place where God meets man, right? That's, that's what it was in the Hebrew. Now, here, here's the thing about us, right? And we're going to get to Hebrews a second. We just read that, that, that Jesus is our altar, right? And we're going to get to that. But before we get to that, I want to show you in the Old Testament what that looked like, because in the Old Testament, that altar was a place where God met man, right? That if you could get to that altar, there was a sense of once I got there, God was going to be there and he would listen to me. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. You know, I put Abram in here, but I really wanted to get to Jacob, but we'll get through this quick. We won't, we won't pass you by, Abram. I say Abram and not Abraham because we're talking about before he had the big promises. So get to Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to start reading from verse 1. Now, Ab- now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you so that your name, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, will, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75. Let's go down to verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he, so he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country east of Bethel, and keep Bethel in mind, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. This funny thing about Bethel is we're going to go there three times today because every time it seems like an important person gets to Bethel, they build an altar. But Abraham was the first, or Abram at this point was the first. He stops there and he calls on the name of the Lord. Beth El means house of God. Whenever you see a Hebrew word with the name Beth, Beth means house, El means Lord or God. That's also, by the way, why uh, Beth is considered a feminine name because women were considered containers. You could hold a little baby in there. That always freaked people out that you could have another life in there. I remember my wife thinking, it's weird that something could just be in there, you know, bouncing around and kicking you and all this kind of stuff. So in, in the ancient languages, women were always considered containers, right? Well, when they say Beth El, they mean a place that contains God, but obviously we know that that's not the case. When we get to Jacob, you'll see how he even takes us a step further in his thinking. But He stops at Bethel, he meets the Lord, he calls on the name of the Lord, and he builds an altar there. As soon as he does this, in the next chapter, he gets in trouble. <laughs> because he goes to Egypt, he, he, he goes to Egypt, and he thinks, my wife is really pretty, and these people are going to see my wife, and they're going to want to kill me to take her, so we're just going to say she's my sister. So no sooner does he go to Bethel, the house of God, he's called of God, so he heads out on this journey. When he gets to Bethel, he stops and he builds an altar because God says, this is it, this is the land, look around you, all this is going to be yours, right? He's in Bethel, so he hears the promise of God, he builds an altar, okay, God is going to do this awesome thing in my life, and, and I'm going to put these stones here to remember that God's going to do this. No sooner does he do that than he goes off and lies to people about who his wife was and gets in a whole bunch of trouble. Have you ever tried to make a promise to God and break it almost as soon as the words are out of your mouth? Has anybody, you know, you make them when you're in trouble usually, right? Oh, Lord, if you just get me out of this thing, I'm going to do this thing for you. And as soon as you're out of that thing, you break the promise just, just like that, right? Here's Abram, and as soon as he gets done, you know, having a spiritual experience of this is the land God has promised me, I'm going to bless me, and it's going to be awesome. And then the next thing he does is he goes and he lies and he messes the whole thing up. The enemy is always trying to kill us in the womb. The enemy is always looking for us in that embryonic state, in that place where God, you know, I don't know how everything spiritually works, but I can almost guarantee you that if the Lord's speaking to you, the enemy knows it. Did you know that? Because if you have someone who's trying to thwart the will of God, if you have an accuser of the brethren who's trying to look at what's wrong in your life and bring that before the Lord, he probably knows what, God, what it is God wants you to do. And when God puts a dream or a vision or something you're supposed to do in your heart, I can almost guarantee you that you're going to run into the enemy coming the other way. And if you never run into the enemy, well, that probably means you haven't quite got a hold of the dream yet, and you're still at the place where you need to go and build that altar, and that's what we're talking about today. But the thing is, is the enemy's always trying to kill it in the embryonic stage. He doesn't want it to start out. So your altar is not only your starting point, it's your starting over point. Because in Genesis 13, he comes back to that same altar in Bethel, Right After he goes through all the wrong stuff, he comes back to that altar and has another moment. You must build in your life a place of remembrance for the words God has spoken over you and what he has done for you. And you have to consolidate your advances to not let yourself get stretched out without stopping to remember what God 
has already done. That's why when we did all this stuff at the, at, the, at the end of the year, I wanted to show you guys all the pictures and all the things in our journey. Because what happens is we put out a lot of prayer requests without ever keeping track of what prayers get answered. You know that? We get a whole lot of, um, hey, pray for me for this, pray for me for that. And I'll be honest, sometimes, sometimes people do. And, and what I try to do is try to pray for them right there if I can, if there's any way. I even decided that in our modern age, if somebody texts me and says to pray something for them, I go ahead and text them back the prayer that God puts in my heart because, you know what, we just have to learn that that's how people communicate now and we have to do that, right? So don't, don't fight it, old people. We're old, you know. You got to figure it out, and that's one of the things we have to do. So I, I, my thing is always never ask me to pray in the future. If you're asking me to pray, let's pray, Right? But we don't keep track of what happens after that. Do we? I have this vision in my head that I'm going to do someday, that I'm going to set up a stand with a journal on it in our church, and, and every time I get a prayer request to me, I'm going to write the prayer for that person in that journal, and I'm going to write their name in there so that anybody would be able to go back and look and say, I asked for prayer, and this is what they prayed for me, and then you would know in your heart whether or not that thing came to pass. Wouldn't that be awesome if your name was written in a church somewhere and you knew that somebody was there praying for that specific need and you could go back years later and be like, oh my gosh, I remember I was going through that and I didn't think I was going to get out of it. But look, these people were praying for me and God brought me good out of that situation. Why don't we keep track of things like that, right? It's always so easy to throw it out there, pray for me for this, pray for me for that. Don't waste God's time. If you're going to ask God for something, then keep track of when he does it. Because what was the thing that really got Jesus mad was when he heals 10 lepers and one comes back, right? Where are the other nine? One person's like, you know, maybe I should say thank you for taking away that life-changing disease that was killing me. Maybe a thank you card would be appropriate at this moment, right? And yet we don't even, we don't even offer God that kind of courtesy when he performs absolute miracles in our life. Nobody knows I always get the request and I never get the praise back. And that makes me wonder, skip over that. Hearing the voice of God is not easy, but it's not optional. When Jesus said, my sheep will know my voice, that always scared me to death because at that point in my life, I had no idea what the voice of God would sound like. If you don't figure that out in your life, you will never be what you're supposed to be. You'll never get where you're supposed to get, and you will make bad decisions. I'm sorry to be negative, but you know what? If you don't figure out how to hear from the Lord, if you don't figure out how to quiet your soul and get in that place where you can honestly be in the presence of God and know what He wants from you, your life will always just feel meaningless always just feel like a circle and a grind and you'll wake up wondering why I got to get up today why do I have to do this today everything feels so empty you've got to figure out how it is in your life you hear the voice of God you've got to figure that out it is not optional Genesis chapter 28 that's as mean as I plan on being okay actually it's not I saw I just saw something else in my notes so not but try to be nicer so after the altar of Abraham He has a son Isaac, then he has a son Jacob. And here Jacob is in chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. So he just randomly stops somewhere because the sun's going down, time to make camp. I love this. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. Now the great thing about this 
He just took a stone and he lays his head on the stone to sleep, which I can't imagine ever being in the place where I'm going to have to use a rock for a pillow. That seems like a bad place. I'm probably just going to go with my arm or lean up against a tree, right? But for whatever reason, he's using a rock. Well, here's the thing about the rock he picks up. That rock is about to become part of his altar. He doesn't realize it, but he's sleeping on an altar. And what happens to him when he's sitting there sleeping on that stone? It says, and he dreamed... Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and on top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land which you lie, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. And your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you'll spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome this place is. There is none other, other than the house of God and his great heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel. So he ended up in the same place that his dad was in. Boy, doesn't that tell you something. How many, how many of us have parents that you feel like at some point you swore you weren't going to be like them? <laughs> right? You were never going to do what they did. And then all of a sudden their words are coming out of your mouth. Or you see some of the same decisions and some of the same habits. Right? Some of the same things that you grew up. And you saw that as normal behavior. And all of a sudden you adopted it without even thinking about it. And the next thing you know you're yelling at your kids. I can't have anything nice in the house with your kids. You know, that's my dad's words coming right out of my mouth, right? Here's Jacob coming back to the same place his dad was at, right? The same place that his dad had had an encounter with the Lord. It doesn't say that he even knew that. It says that he just stopped there because it was getting dark. And so almost out of coincidence, he feels he stops in this place to lay down his head. And the next thing you know, God is standing over him saying, I'm the God of your father, I'm the God of your grandfather, and I've got things for you to do, Jacob. And what does Jacob do? He takes that pillow and he makes it into an action. He takes that dream and he begins to build something out of it because he knows that God has told him something and he wants to lay hold of that and he wants to have a place that he can come back and say, this is the land God promised me. This is the place God said he was going to put me in and no matter what else happens, God said to me that he's not going to rest until this thing is accomplished. Right? And he pours oil on it. And, and what does Jacob do after this? He messes up. In fact, Jacob is probably one of the most crooked people in the Bible God ever blesses, right? <laughs> He's almost as bad as you can be and be blessed by God. His name means deceiver. Sorry, Jake, that's where Jacob comes. But you knew that, right? Heel catcher, right? They, he was born as a twin and he tried to catch the other twin coming out because the thing about being born in that culture is first one out gets double the portion of the next guy. Right? And so Jacob's whole life, he's chasing after his brother's double portion. He wants his brother's blessing. He convinces his brother to sell it to him. But that's not enough. Just because his brother sells it to him, what if his dad doesn't honor it? So Jacob figures out a way to trick his dad into thinking he's Esau, and he gets Esau's blessing put on him. And when Esau comes to Jacob, it says, well, or comes to um, Isaac, it says, no, bless me as well. Isaac says, I've already blessed your brother. And so he gives him what he has left. He was a terrible person. Right? I mean, all through his life, not only was he a trickster, his mom was a trickster because she's the one to talk him into half of it, and then his uncle was a trickster because he goes to work for his uncle, and his uncle says, hey, just work for me so many years, and I'll give you my daughter for your wife. He's like, okay. And instead of giving him the pretty daughter, he gives him the ugly one. That's what the Bible says. It says she was hard on the eyes. There's something along that line, right? And so 
Okay, so help you out with another seven years. I'll give you the pretty one, I promise this time, right? I think I'd probably double check on the wedding night at that point. Um, but that was the environment he was raised in. He was raised in a lying, cheating, stealing environment. And yet, here's God stopping him in this place and saying, I'm going to give you the land that you're on. I'm going to give you this place. Not only that, but I'm going to bless everybody else in the world through you, Jacob. And we know that this, this, his lineage produces Jesus Christ at some point. So we know that comes true, but he has no idea how God's going to do all this. All he knows is that he goes to sleep in some place he thinks he's randomly happened into, and the next thing you know, God's saying, I've got this great and mighty call on your life, and I want to do something with you. And all he knows to do is to build an altar and say, all I've got, I'm with you. But then he still goes off and gets into all this trouble, right? He doesn't immediately say, yeah, no, exactly. He didn't leave enough on the altar. He was called in the middle of his mess, and he met God with all his Jacob is the one who wrestles with God, right? <coughs> and you know why he wrestles with God? Because God couldn't talk to him. You know, some people don't hear from God because God can't talk to you. Did you know that? Not that he's not able. I mean, he could, he could rip the earth open and make it, you know, make it like a big mouth. Hey, David, don't go to Best Buy, right? I mean, he could... Whatever God wants to do, he's God, but that's not how he works in creation, is it? He talks to a heart, he speaks in a spiritual voice. But a lot of people can't hear from God because they won't talk to God because they can never sit down all the hypocrisy and preaching and pretending that they have to put up in front of God to convince God that they really are as good as they want him to believe they are. You know, God has... I mean, let me, let me put you this way. You have never sinned outside the sight of God. You've never said an angry word to somebody. You've never gossiped about somebody. You've never, you know, been passive aggressive and left a mean little note for somebody and, and, and ran off without God being there in that moment. Did you know that? There is absolutely nothing you have done that has stood in some of Every sin, every fault, every bad day, right? I didn't mean those things, Lord, I was hungry. You know, I'm a bad person when I'm hungry, you know? I like to think I'm pretty holy, but you don't get a candy bar in me. I, I've, we've been talking about fasting, and I've been trying my hand at it, and Kristen figured out that I was doing it yesterday. Did She's like, oh, you're fasting. Like, whatever. Not why I said that. It's really true. You know, I'm not, I'm really mad. This is really, you know, because you hate it when they figure that out about you, don't you? That, you know, you're just mad because you're hungry. But you know, every one of those things, God's been there when I did it. There's no pretense with him. There's no convincing him. There's no... You know, pull it, putting on enough, <laughs> enough of a disguise or enough of an act or enough of a show that you're going to fool him. He knows this. And yet if you can't get to that place in your heart where you can stand before God and say, this is who I really am, warts and all. This is who I am, all my brokenness, everything that's hurt about me. Why are we trying to convince him that we're not broken when he's the one person that can heal what's wrong? And yet there we are trying to tell him, I'm not broken. No, I'm fine, Lord. I'm fine. I'm good. Right? Last one, and I'm skipping over all kinds of stuff, and that's the altar of Jeroboam. I talked about this. Um, I assume everybody goes with me everywhere I go, so when I preach a message somewhere else, I assume you heard it. Um, it's just this thing I have wrong in my head. Um, but I love the story about this. This is the one, it's, there are two prophets, and and uh, one prophet basically tricks the other one into giving the wrong word. But the thing is, is it all happens around the altar of Jeroboam. Now, see, Jeroboam was the king of northern Israel. And at this point, 
northern Israel and southern Israel had separated out. You had the Yankees and the Confederates, right? And well, Yankee Jeroboam didn't want his people going down to worship at the Confederate Judah, house of Judah in Jerusalem. So guess what? Bethel's a really nice place. I'm going to set up an altar at Bethel. And instead of going to Bethel, you, instead of going to Jerusalem, it's on the road. Why don't you stop here in Bethel and we'll worship here at Bethel instead there. But of course, it wasn't the temple. It was a it was an altar that was shaped like bulls. It was the image of the golden calves all over again. And he's setting it up on the side of the road. He's setting up a confederate, a, a counterfeit of the real temple. Sometimes we try to build shrines about what God did. Right? Sometimes we try to build a big, a big monument around what God used to do. Sometimes... <laughs> We get so obsessed with one time when he moved in one certain way that we get convinced that's the only way he ever moves. And that's all, you know, we got to go back and repeat the formula. If we sing the same songs and dance the same dances and say the same things, then God will move the same way. And that's not how God works, is it? And that's what Jeroboam's trying. Look, it's, it's an altar, right? It looks, it look, it's just as good. You don't need to go all the way to Jerusalem. You don't really have to do all that. Just stay here and worship here, and that's fine. It's that same sort of, it's not going to cost you anything, or it's going to cost you less, or it's easier not to do the will of God than it is to do the will of God. And it never works out. It never works out. I had a whole bunch more, but we got to get... We got to get, I know you guys got stuff to do today, right? You can build a church, you can build a praise team, and you can preach a sermon, but if God isn't in it, all you have is idolatry. Did you know that? Man, we can put together, we can, we can look at something another church does, and we can be like, wow, they sing these songs, and, and they have this kind of lighting. And, and I heard one person say, how are you going to have the Holy Spirit move if you don't have a smoke machine on the stage, right? How will anybody know what the Shekinah glory of God looks like if you don't have a smoke machine, right? We put all these things around church, and we say, if we don't have a church like that, then how can we have a church that's, that has God in it? But let me tell you, there's a whole lot of idolatry masquerading as church nowadays, you know? That in the end, being in the presence of God is what makes it church. Now, here's an interesting little thing. And, uh, and, and ushers, if you would come and prepare the communion service, if the praise team would come back on the stage platform, come up these two steps. See, we don't have an altar at this church, but I don't know if you know this, but a lot of Protestant churches stopped having altars because of the break with Catholicism. So instead of an altar, they replaced it with a communion table. Do you know why? Because on an, offer, on an altar, we give God what we can. On the communion table, He gives us what He is. That Christ is our altar. And then when we take communion today, we're taking part in what he would sacrifice for us. When he asked Abraham to, to sacrifice his own son Isaac and Abraham said he was willing, God said, no, don't do it because God wouldn't ask him to do the unthinkable and yet God turned around and did the unthinkable for us. He gave his only begotten son. So as they pass out the elements, we're going to sing a song.